Hello and welcome to another Oxford Sandy and Black Pig Group podcast. I'm your regular host, Andrew O'Shea. Um, this podcast comes from a very sunny but very blustery uh, Lincolnshire as I, uh, as I sit in my office. Um, I'm kind of glad that I'm indoors but uh, would like to be outside with the with the sun but the wind doesn't look too, uh, too friendly unfortunately. Um, so this episode... Um, is a replay of an event that was held uh, yesterday um, with vet Louise Blenkhorn, who talked us through farrowing um, medications, experience, what to look for, when to help, etc. Very useful session. Um, it's about an hour and a half long, but, but very, very interesting and, and uh, lots of good questions. So I really hope you enjoy that. Um, before we get on to that, just an update about other upcoming events. We are, we are lucky that... Um, uh, the beginning of April, the 8th, 9th of April, uh, top date, exact date and time to be confirmed, Emily Boyce from AHDB is going to be talking to us. Uh, the, those that also follow the group will have seen that I published the 2021 so far farrowing data, um, and there were a few questions there. Um, so just to clarify the point, so these are members of our group who have told us that they've had litters, they've advised us, what the breeding cell line is and what the boar cell line is and how many um, piglets of each sex were born um, and, and, and were alive at sort of a week of age. Um, the data no means reflects um, any registrations. Um, so, so far this year we've had uh, 27 litters reported um, of which produced 123 gilts and 111 um, boars. Um, the most popular region of out of interest is down in the southwest. I've had eight litters, uh, six in the central region, uh, four in Ireland, four in Wales, um, two in the south, one in the north, um, Scotland with one as well, um, Northern Ireland yet to report any uh, actual farrowings. Um, on the bloodline perspective, you know, all balls have been used quite equally. So um, Alexander, Alistair, Clarence, Jackal, you know, all equally used for breeding. Um, on, on the sow bloodlines, um, we haven't had any reports of any Elsie uh, or Lady um, farrings yet. So, if you do have, a, you are breeding those particular lines and you have got farrings, shortly, please do let us know. Um, right, that's enough of my waffling. Um, so I'll hand over now to Kim, who introduces Louise from um, the recording of last night's. Um, presentation from Louise Blenkhorn. Well good evening and welcome ladies and gentlemen, lovely to see all your faces. Um, so tonight we've got Louise Blenkhorn and as you know Louise is um, a pig vet and that is her specialised subject and she's lovely because she comes onto our group and she gives us her time and she's quite kindly said that she would come and have a chat with us tonight. So as Andrew said it will all be recorded um, and questions to be put through via the little chat button at the bottom of your screen or, or the top right, which whatever system you've got working. And Andrew will ask the questions throughout. So if you could all please make sure that you are on mute um, and we will start the session. Over to you, please, Louise. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. It's nice to see so many of you here. Uh, Kim's kindly invited me to talk to you. Uh, about farrowing management and I am just going to attempt to share my screen now with you. I'm not very computer literate so uh, bear with me. 
I hope everybody can see that now. Um, yeah, so we've got a lot to get through. We've only got one hour to do it. So uh, let's get going. And as Kim has already said, if you've got any burning questions, just pop them in the uh, chat and uh, Andrew will pop them to me and we'll try to address them throughout. Um, so the uh, agenda that I want to go through really tonight is uh, checks to ensure that we're ready for the farrowing process itself. What does an actual normal farrowing uh, look like? Um, and more importantly, what does a, a, um, a farrowing which isn't going well look like? When is it appropriate to intervene? Um, how can we actually assist the side during farrowing? What do we look for to make sure that the side is feeling well and healthy after she's finished farrowing? Common health problems that you might encounter with both the side and the piglet. Uh, and a bit about management of the sigh and the piglet to ensure good health. So cracking on to uh, preparing for farrowing. So the gestation length of a sigh is really, it's easy to remember. It's three months, three weeks and three days or 115 days. So in preparation for the farrowing, assuming that you've got uh, your service dates, what we need to ensure is that we've got the accommodation clean and disinfected and dried. Drying is really important to make sure that we can minimize the amount of bacteria in the environment. And that's the really important key uh, to minimizing that. Um, Ensuring that the bedding is flat uh, to ensure that the piglets can move away freely from the side, uh, that'll reduce your uh, laid-ons. If you're farrowing outdoors, make sure that you place your fenders on. Make sure that you've got all your heat sources and your creep areas working and turned on uh, because you might farrow overnight, particularly so. Move the size into the farrowing accommodation quietly and calmly. You guys will all be used to handling all your size, so they should be well used to having human contact. So it's not maybe so much of an issue for you guys. I'm used to working with a lot of um, commercial um, size and I look after about 50,000 size uh, with my clients. Um, if you are farrowing in groups, um, how's the gilts next to the size? And one of the reasons why I say that is because it keeps the gilts calm. Um, and it can avoid savaging. So guilt savaging isn't something that we commonly see even in the commercial pigs. Um, and I will run through a little bit more about guilt savaging a little bit later on in the presentation. But one of the ways that we can avoid that, uh, if you are group farrowing, keep the gilts next to the size. Turn radios on. Uh, not only does it keep our stockmen happy, but it keeps our size during the farrowing process. It keeps them calm and it makes them less reactive to your attendance at the farrowing process. So she's less likely to get up and down and that again will reduce the number of overlays that you're likely to see. So what are we actually looking for whenever the sigh is about to farrow? So about two weeks before her due date, you will notice that the teats will become enlarged and she'll have an increase in prominent veins around the other. And that's due to an increase in blood supply uh, to the area at this time. The vulva begins to swell and it begins to redden about four days before she starts to farrow. Uh, the mammary glands become a lot more defined about two days before she's due to farrow. And you'll start to see a bit of watery secretion from the, from the teats if you give them a gentle squeeze. And that'll happen about two days before. Now that um, secretion from the udder will become a lot more milky when she's about 12 to 24 hours away from farrowing. 
once the milk becomes abundant and it easily flows from the teat when you gent gently squeeze it, the size probably about six stars off firing at point. Um, the sigh also becomes uh, very restless. She starts nest building. Um, and if, she's if you see that, she's probably going to farrow within the next 24 hours. On the day of farrowing, as you can see from this sigh in the picture, this, they will not eat, so they'll go off their feed. So again, that's, that's a sure sign that she's about to farrow. Uh, the, the absolute imminent signs of farrowing, obviously, are contractions, uh, vulval discharges, teal swishing, and they tend to lift the upper leg. And I am hopefully going to show you if this streams, and it will depend on how your, your own internet connection is working at this time. I'm going to show you a video of a normal um, farrowing process. This is one of my own clients, actually. They have freedom farrowing um, accommodation. And I will just try to play it for you just now. I might just skip forward at certain points because I, I know when the piglets are coming. <laughs> And there he is. That was a very fast, fast one. So that piglet came out head first, which is perfectly normal. I'm just going to try to skip it on a little bit for you. piglets are actually responsible for initiating the farrowing process in pigs um, and the piglets initiate that because there's a reduced nutrient availability and this stimulates the placenta to produce prostaglandin. This stops the piglets from producing the maintenance hormone which is uh, progesterone and that's what initiates the farrowing process so it's actually the piglets that initiate the farrowing process. Larger litters will often farrow earlier because the nutrient availability will decrease faster. So you can see from this side that she's got intermittent abdominal muscle straining, and it's often accompanied by shivering, which you can see just in the top of the picture. Whenever the piglet's about to come, she often draws her upper leg forwards. The important point to notice is that the straining is always mild except necessarily immediately prior to the piglet being born. Prior to the piglets being born, you'll quite often see the tail swishing. And that normally indicates that the piglet's about to be born in the next 10 seconds. 
So at this point, this guy was having one piglet every three minutes. So, um, Louise, it's a great video. Just had a couple of questions come in on the direct message that I think quite pertinent here. Um, one is, when should we worry about uh, if there are no signs of piglets and uh, how long does the shivering last? Yep. Um, so the, the first question, uh, thank you, Andrew, um, we're going to address um, what is the normal interval between piglets? Um, we're going to run through that in just a second because that's very important because we need to know when to actually uh, intervene. Um, the shivering will last through usually throughout um, the entire farrowing process. Once she has passed the placenta, that should stop straight away. Excellent, thank you. So I think the important point really to notice is that the sigh is very calm. There's very mild straining. There's very little, you know, aside from whenever the piglet's about to come, there's, there's I think we've got, I'll just skip it forward slightly. There we go. So that piglet, you'll notice has come backwards, which is perfectly normal also. And it's more common in the second half of the piglets to be born. So that was number 11 piglet and that was the last piglet to be born. So um, just going to move on and address the um, second uh, question. Thank you, Andrew, that someone said. Um, it is important to know the typical speed of farrowing and the average intervals um, between the piglets because we need to know if this is extended when we need to intervene and when we're because that's very important because the longer the farrowing process takes, the, the more likely we are um, to see stillbirth piglets. So you can see just there at the bottom, 70% of all the the stillbirth piglets that we see are born in the last quarter of the order. And that is very often due to a lack of oxygen. So you can think whenever the piglets are starting to detach from the placenta, the only thing that, that's keeping them alive is the umbilical cord. And the longer it takes them to get out, the more deprived of oxygen that they become. Now, what I've got on the screen here is very much the average, you know, so gilts with the average duration of farrowing should be fairly short. One, they've got a smaller litter size and, and two, they've, um, the muscles are very responsive to the hormones. Um, size tend to take a little bit longer, about two and a half hours. And the average interval between piglets for gilts would be about 12 minutes and for size would be about 18 to 20 minutes. Um, that that sigh in the um, in the video actually had those three piglets three minutes apart. I mean, I skipped it on a little bit there, but that was that was fairly um, fairly fast. Now, don't be surprised. Don't, excuse me. Don't be surprised if there's about a forty-five minute delay, forty to forty-five minute delay between the first and the second piglet. Thereafter, I would expect the interval to be about ten to twenty minutes between each live piglet. That's fairly normal. And the reason why it takes longer between the first and the second piglet is because the act of suckling at the teat will release the natural oxytocin. 
uh, in the side. The natural oxytocin in the side will cause the uterus to contract. So the more piglets she has suckling at the teeth, the more oxytocin she has, and the more the uterus will contract. It will take longer between the first and second piglet, but thereafter, these are the sort of averages that we're looking at. So what could possibly cause, um, unfortunately things don't always go smoothly and, and size will experience some silvering. There's usually two reasons for this. The first one is to contract. That's more likely to happen in old size or those in extreme body conditions. So that could be over fat size or it could be uh, thin size. So that's the extreme of body condition or older size. Um, and it just means that the uterus is not as responsive to the natural oxytocin as what it should be. The second reason, or the second primary cause um, would be obstruction. Now this can be from oversized piglets. So that could be especially in your gilts, uh, particularly if she's got a smaller litter. It could be a malpresentation of a piglet. It could be a dual presentation, i.e. two piglets trying to come together. It could be due to fetal abnormalities uh, or it could be due to a uterine twist. Fetal Thankfully, fetal abnormalities and uterine twists are fairly uncommon. So if we encounter one of these problems, when do we know? When is the right so my time um, is 45 minutes. I would intervene immediately if the sigh was in distress. So if the sigh was contracting at hard, hard contractions and she was not producing a piglet, if she was panting, if she was red in the eye or she, if she was visibly uncomfortable, the farrowing sigh that I showed you in the video was clearly fairly comfortable um, she was getting on with the process and, and, and she was she was doing really well would intervene immediately also if I saw any meconium in the vulval discharge so the meconium is basically the first um, poo of the of, of the piglet um, if the piglet um, does that within the side it's distressed it needs to come out right now or it's going to be a slow birth so if I see any meconium, and I'm going to show you a picture of what that looks like in a second, uh, failure to deliver the placenta within one hour um, happens very uncommonly, um, but it would be, um, you would have to ring your vet and have a word with them at that point as to what to do with regards to retain placenta. They may need some hormonal intervention at that point. So I'm just Hi, going Louise. to deal with the above Sorry point. to interrupt you in mid-flow there. Seems to be a problem with the signal. Maybe if you turn your camera off, um, the audio might flow. It's breaking up a little bit. So I don't know if that's down to bandwidth or not, if anyone else is having that problem. A couple of people have messaged to say they can't quite hear properly. So maybe if you turn your video off for a bit, that might help. Yep, okay, can try that, Andrew, no problem. That sounds clear, a lot clearer. Okay, so let's, let's see how it goes. Thank you, Louise. No worries, no worries. Thank you for that. 
Um, so not everybody obviously uh, watches their piglets um, or their size uh, farrow. So some people will say to me, well, how do I know if it's been um, 45 minutes? Well, one of the things I can say to them, look at the degree of dryness as a guide to how long the piglet has actually been born. If the piglets that are suckling the sigh or are all dry, the chances are that that last piglet has been born 30 to 40 minutes previous. And if she hasn't had one since that point and she hasn't passed her placenta, then the likelihood is that there's an obstruction there. So um, that's a picture of the um, meconium. So you can just see that those dark little um, brown to green pellets on, this is one of my stockman's uh, gloves. He did actually have to intervene in this case and he pulled out three piglets uh, because we noticed the meconium staining at the vulva. So there's the brown green um, piglet poo basically at the, at the um, size vulva. So before we go through um, actually assisting the SI, I think it's important to familiarise ourselves with um, the SI anatomy. So we actually know what we're doing when we put our hands in there. So this is a picture of the SI's um, pelvis and reproductive tract. And as you can see, the cervix rests towards the head end of the pelvic bone. Um, and as does the uterus. It also is in front of the pelvis, so the piglets will have to come through the pelvis in order to um, be born. So this is the normal piglet orientation to be born. So about 50% of piglets are born head first and 50% are born back feet first. Back feet is perfectly normal and it's more common in the um, second half of the farrowing. So if they are coming out head first, they should come out with their front legs bent backwards towards the midline, pointing towards the back legs. So their back legs will be pointing backwards. When the piglets are born hind legs first, their front legs will straddle their head. So the piglets should be born, as you can see from this picture, their back, the piglet back should be facing the back of the side. This is important to know because you will see problems if the piglets are born upside down because of the anatomy of the pelvis and the fact that the uterus sits towards the midline um, of the sigh. The most common issue if presented backwards is the hind legs are facing forwards. And what you would feel in that case is just the bum and the tail. So, Whenever we're about to assist the size, it's important to always wear a gloved hand with lots of lots of lubricants. We do not want to make the inside um, of the side too dry, otherwise we will make the situation worse and she will not be able to proceed with the farrowing herself. So if the side is on a right, use your right hand. Put all your fingers together to create a cone shape and slowly ease your arm into the vagina until you reach the pelvis. So 
as you can see, this dockman is clearly very experienced. He pulled these three piglets out, created a glove. He created a cone with his uh, cone shape with his fingers, and he slowly he used his right arm because the side was laying on the right side, um, and he eased his arm in nice and slowly. So when you put your arm into the vagina and you reach the pelvis, you'll feel a narrowing of the reproductive tract. And that's because the pelvic bones are surrounding your hand. Once you get past this point, you'll be able to check to see if the piglet is in the correct orientation. So the correct orientation is, remember, the piglet's back should be facing the back of the side, either head first or feet first is absolutely fine. So long as in the correct orientation back to back. If the piglet is upside down or if the hind legs are pointing forwards, i.e. you just feel a bum and a tail, you will have to push the piglet back and correct the orientation. So if the piglet is coming head first in the proper orientation, i.e. back to back, what you'll have to do is place your index and your middle fingers behind the ears of the piglet and gently pull it forward. Shown in the picture. So index finger and middle fingers behind the ears. If the piglet is coming legs pointing forwards, Pull both the half the hawk areas and pull the piglet gently through the pelvic canal as per the picture. Once you've removed the piglet, ensure that it's breathing and make sure you clear the mucus from its nose and its mouth. Hi Louise, there's a, a few questions coming along this topic about, um, <clears throat> so, um, how common is it that you have to intervene with a farrowing was was one question we have obviously I, I, you're on a, a, a lot larger scale to us but i mean is there a statistic um, for that um i would probably say that um obviously depending on on unit depending on side condition and uh parity profile of the that we deal with obviously um bigger size and older size are more likely to need some intervention but i would say uh, on average you would probably have to intervene maybe one in 20. okay um and another question along that is how would you know if you're waiting for the last piglet or the placenta is there a way to tell if you finish fairing and you're just waiting for the placenta or whether there's still a piglet um, no, unfortunately, there's there, there's no real way to tell. Um, aside from um, the the straining will be very mild, but I think she will once the farrowing is complete and the piglets aren't moved through the pelvic canal, she will seem a lot more contented. There seems okay. to be a lot less leg lift. The piglets coming through the pelvic canal. They, once that's, um, once that's happened, she should be a lot more contented. She will still remain um, with the odd contraction until the placenta is passed, though. Okay. Uh, and so question that uh, sort of leads on to that is the, obviously, when you're going inside to 
Zool explore? Is there a particular angle you should be going in at with your hands or straight in or? No, I, well, I'll just, um, I'm just seeing if I can skip back. So as you can see there on the picture on the left hand side, um, I think it's very important to know the anatomy first. So put your hand in, um, straight back, and then at a 45 degree angle down. So once you feel that tightening of the pelvic, um, around the pelvis, we hand in, you'll feel the reproductive tightening. And that's because you're going through that pelvis there that you can see in the um, left-hand picture. The uterus will then take a dive down because of the weight of the piglets at a 45 degree angle. So that pigs have a bicornate uterus. Um, which, which means that their uterus is separated into two horns. So you will need to um, check both horns for piglets. Thank you. There are a few more, there's quite a few questions coming through, but I think there'll be ones that we could possibly answer at the end. So I'll, uh, apologies if you are, if you've asked the question and I'm not covered it yet, I'll, we'll let um, uh, Louise carry on. It, it might cover some of them off. Thank you, Louise. No problem. So, um, one of the things that I very often get asked as the vets is when is, is the appropriate time to use uh, Reprosyn or Oxytocin? Um, just for those who are unaware, Reprosyn is basically a long acting form of Oxytocin. So in the case of uterine inertia, where the uterus fails to contract adequately, you can use oxytocin to speed up farrowing, um, but oxytocin should never be used routinely, only as required and only as directed by your vet. My golden rule um, about using it is that you must check that there is no obstruction before you inject that into the eye. And that is because she will, if there is a blockage, her uterus will contract against the blockage and you will potentially rupture her uterus. Okay, so before you inject the size with any uh, oxytocin, you need to make sure that there is no piglet obstructing the birth canal. Okay, um, as an alternative, I've just popped in the bottom there at blue, uh, in blue. Um, if you're sure that there is no obstruction and you are worried about the speed of farrowing, try rubbing or udder you're basically mimic mimicking um, suckling at the teat. That will allow her to um, release her natural oxygen and that itself will speed up the process of farrowing. If you're sure that there's no blockage, try rubbing her udder just to speed up the process of farrowing if you're worried that there has been a, an increased interval. I mentioned this a little bit earlier about piglet savaging, and I've just popped that in um, really for your reference. And one of the things that um, I mentioned previously was to house the gilts um, next to the size because it tends to keep them calmer. Um, radios will very often um, help keep gilts calm as well. Um, there are licensed products and anti-inflammatory painkillers that are licensed um, during the farrowing process, Metacam Oral, for example, or Prasatam, which is um, uh, paracetamol. So those are anti-inflammatory painkillers which can um, help to alleviate the pain of, of the birthing process and help to calm the guilt. Um, move into the farrowing accommodation 
good time to make sure that she's got time to relax, um, nest build, uh, work quietly and calmly around her, provide lots of nesting material. Um, if if yes, you can box the piglets away and unusually after the farrowing process has stopped, um, she will normally calm down. I've put there uh, as a very last resort, you can use um, a sedative, but as I say, it's a very last resort. It's called Stresnel. It's a it's um, the only licensed sedative for, for pigs. But as I say, their last resort, because it will actually so this be farrowing, but is going to be counterproductive. That's interesting. So we do have a question popped in there about the drugs, and um, it's actually quite a good question, really. Is uh, can you give human paracetamol? Um, no, um, human paracetamol. It it's not the right strength, Andrew. Um, it wouldn't be the right strength to um, give to the size. Okay, thank you. It's a question there as well. You mentioned that last thing about what do you mean by boxing the piglets away? Um, so she can't scavenge them. Take them away from her onto a heat source until um, until the farrowing process is finished. Okay, understood. understood. Basically, just to try to stop her from. Yeah, sorry. Very often, um, it, it is just the the pain or the strange sensation, or the, you know, they, they haven't experienced this before. Once the firing process is actually finished, um, they usually calm down. Thank you, Louise. So hopefully, we've uh, got our piglets out. Sorry. So hopefully we've got our piglets out safety um, and now we need to know how to manage them successfully. So the three most important factors that, that influence piglet survival are birth weight, temperature drop after birth and colostrum intake. And I'm just gonna run through a few of uh, each of those separately. So um, smaller piglets, they chill more quickly. They have low fat reserves and they have a higher surface area to volume ratio, which means that they lose heat very, very quickly. They're less competitive at the teat, uh, and this leads them to have a lower colostrum intake. Colostrum is essential for energy, warmth, and antibodies, and that makes them more likely to be laid on. So as you can see from the table, and again, this is um, very much worked out on a commercial scale, but piglets of, a, of, of less than one kilo at birth have very high mortality rates. Looking at uh, body temperature, so you can see here within the first two to three hours, it's absolutely critical. You need to get your piglets dried, warm and suckling within the first three hours. So as you can see from the graph, despite the piglet birth weight, all of the um, temperatures began to rise after the uh, uh, two hour period and that was due to colostrum intake. So just to remember that colostrum is not just about antibodies, it is also about warmth. It's like having coming in on a cold day and having a cup of tea, it just warms you from the inside. Um, so it's essential to get these little pigs um, onto the teeth as quickly as possible. I've just popped this in for your reference and of course your all your farrowing accommodations will be um, 
slightly different. Um, so it is for your reference only and it outlines preferred environmental temperatures of both, both the sow and the piglet. And as you can see, they're often very, very different, which is quite often why we need creep areas. The sow is comfortable at 16 to 18 degrees, whereas the piglets, when they're first born, they need 28 to 30. So that's why our creep areas can be very, very important. So it allows us to keep the environmental temperature of the sow um, so that she's comfortable whilst providing that little niche environment for the piglet. So that's where your heat lamps and your creep areas uh, and your heat mats come in. Uh, also, the piglets, um, if they can learn to use that creep area, it will reduce your overlays. So colostrum. So side does not produce any more colostrum if she is 20 piglets and if she's two piglets. She has a set amount of colostrum, whether she's got 20 piglets or two. So each piglet needs to make sure that it gets its adequate share of colostrum to make sure that it survives. Now, when I ask people, what is the importance of colostrum? Everybody says to me, it's antibodies. It's not just antibodies. Antibodies are very, very important, but it's also warmth, as you can see from that graph with body temperature, and it's also nutrition. So it's really important that the, that the piglets get the adequate colostrum within the first four to six hours. After four to six hours, the capacity for the piglets to absorb the antibodies really quickly reduces. So you can imagine large litters and if you're last born, it's quite a fight to get to the teeth. So what we can do with those weak born or smaller piglets, we can strip the milk out, we can syringe feed them. I've popped in there, you can give them about 30 mils four times in the first, uh, in the first day. Um, you can give them colostrum paste. There are colostrum pastes available, such as Porky Boost, Lifeguard FE. It has a bit of iron in it. Um, but these should be viewed as an energy source only. They are not a substitute for the size own colostrum. I always say that to, to my clients. It will give the, I view it as a tool to give the piglet energy to get onto the teat itself. Um, it's better than nothing, um, but it is not a substitute for the size. Um, I don't, I mean, I popped in the bottom there that the, that the piglets, that they must suckle their own mother for 12 hours prior to cross fostering. That will only, obviously, you will only cross foster if you have groups um, farrowing and it's probably not uh, very common in, in, um, in your breed of pigs. But it's very important that the piglets suckle their own mother. And just a graph, just to reiterate, just how important it is within the first six hours that those piglets get those antibodies, because after those six hours, those antibodies drop away uh, very, very, very rapidly. And the capacity to, for the piglet to absorb it drops off rapidly also. So I mentioned um, how we can ensure adequate colostrum. And one of the ways that we can do it is by split suckling. Um, I recommend this in large litters or where there's more piglets than teat space. Uh, so count the number of piglets you've got, count the number of teats that the functional teats that the sigh has. Um, and if you if if there's more piglets than, than teat space or if there's a larger litter, um, you can do what we call a split suckling. Now that involves what I will normally do on a commercial scale is my clients will mark the firstborn, for example, six piglets. 
uh, as the Cypharos. We will let her finish and after the farming process has a litter or if there is more piglets than teat space we will start to split suckle suckle at the teat uh, they should have nice full bellies they should be feeling very strong and what we can do is we can box them away under the heat lamp for 40 minutes for 40 minutes would be about the maximum amount of time i would lock them away um, it gives the smaller uh, last born piglets a chance to get their share of the colostrum. But after 40 minutes, you must let the rest uh, of the piglets out to suckle. The reason being is that the sire will naturally want to suckle the piglets uh, at least once every, uh, every hour. Uh, and should you lock the piglets away for more than 40 minutes, they could become weak themselves. So just for 40 minutes and it allows those last born smaller piglets um, a chance to suckle the colostrum do not lock away any piglets that uh, have no gut fill or that are small there's a sorry louise there's, there's quite a pertinent question popped in there again there so mm -hmm. obviously if, if if piglet's not willing to suckle uh, someone's asked for advice on the, how do you encourage a piglet to suckle if the sail turns into a t-rex after fairing i rather grumpy sow how would you try and encourage that um if it was a grumpy side that wouldn't let you strip out um any milk um then you have to look down the lines of of colostrum replacers i i do not find that um size are very commonly uh, like a T-Rex post farrowing. And very often, even the grumpiest sigh, if you rub her udder, she will very quickly lie down. The, the um, release of oxytocin has a very naturally calming effect on them and they will tend to, even the grumpiest sigh will tend to roll over and let the piglet suckle. If that piglet um, is too weak um, to actually suckle itself, I would, strip out the, uh, the milk into a cup and syringe feed it. The syringe um, feeding, you can stomach tube them, but again, you know, you need to feel very competent about doing that uh, to ensure that you're actually stomach tubing into the stomach rather than um, into the windpipe. Thank you, Louise. So I've just popped in here, my lovely picture of all my piglets suckling. <laughs> um, and they tend to very quickly organize themselves into a hierarchy. Um, the biggest, strongest piglets will always suckle from the front teats. And that's because there's a better um, blood supply and better milk supply at the front. Uh, each piglet will suss out its own teat space within the first 24 to 36 hours. Um, the sigh will suckle the piglets about once every hour and the milk let down is only, uh, the milk is only let down for a few seconds uh, once every hour. And if you're not there when it's let down, you've missed it. Um, so that's why it's very important to ensure that every piglet has its teat space. Yeah, so, so there's a question coming on that as well. So how do you, you know, quite often if there's two piglets fighting for one teat and there's obviously the stronger piglet, how would you, how would you deal with a weaker piglet, the one that's not? Manage to claim a teat. Assuming, Andrew, that um, she has adequate um, teats, 
Um, and what I would say to what I say to my clients is it has to be functional teats. So not be enough functional teats. Is there a button teat or is there a blind ending teat on the side that is not producing milk or has the side got um, a mastitic teat? Uh, something that you need to look into. Um, if they're fighting um, for teat space after the 36 hour period, there could be something wrong with either the, the number of teats that she's got or her milk supply. Um, if that is the case uh, and they are, um, there isn't adequate milk supply or teat space, you need to look into um, supplementary milk. Thank you. So post farrowing checks on the size. So the placenta is typically passed within about four hours of the last piglet. Um, and once the afterbirth is passed, the, the side generally feels very contented. Um, she should be talking to her piglets and the hind leg movement and the shivering will stop at that point. Um, there might be, just to note that there might be slight vaginal discharge, which is perfectly normal up to about four days post farrowing. Now that is normal provided that the udder is normal and that the sigh is eating well, okay? So yeah, so just go back onto that point one, there was a, there was a few questions earlier about the placenta and yeah. how do you determine if the entire placenta has come out? Should you remove it from the sow or should you let the sow gilt eat the uh, placenta? You know, is there benefits in that? Um, uh, yes, Andrew, it's very common that the um, that the sire will eat the placenta. Um, if she doesn't, uh, obviously it needs to be removed and disposed of appropriately or down the correct um, disposal lines. Um, as I say, the placenta will normally pass within about four hours. Um, I would not um, pull the placenta out. That needs time to detach. And what you need to do, ensure is that she's not... If, if you will risk some internal bleeding um, if you do pull the placenta, it will detach naturally uh, and it will come away. Um, and the side will feel very contented. Um, if you um, have a placenta, you'll quite often see um, increased vaginal discharge, um, which will become very smelly and purulent. Um, as I say, some discharge is normal up to about four days, but if there is retained placenta, it will go beyond the four day stage. Thank you, Louise. So, which leads us on to signs of ill health in the sigh. Um, so, if the sigh is not feeling well post farrowing, Obviously, she will she will stop eating. She will not get up. You will see this uh, purulent uh, vulval discharge if she's got a bit of metritis. Look at her udder. She might have mastitis. It'll be hard. It'll be red. It'll be swollen. It'll be painful. She won't want you to touch it. She probably won't want the piglets to touch it. And she could be udder guarding, which means that she will lay on her stomach and refuse to let the piglet suckle. She may even stop milking altogether. Uh, and what you will see then is very narrow, hungry piglets trying to uh, encourage the side to roll over and let them suckle. Um, if it, um, if it uh, goes a bit further than that, you may even see discoloration of the skin. 
um, and that will indicate that uh, possibly start of septicemia. Um, always check for fever and uh, a normal side temperature or a fever of a side, I should say, a fever of a side, uh, and that is not on farrowing day. So farrowing day, the temperature will naturally um, increase. Um, but beyond farrowing day, anything above 39 degrees Celsius will be considered a fever. So one of the most common things that we see um, in uh, the commercial world or in pigs is, is what we call MMA. So that is mastitis, which is inflammation of the udder, metritis, which is uh, an inflammation of the uh, uterus, and agalactia, which is a posh word for no milk. Um, so don't necessarily see all the signs together. You may see one sign, you may see two together and be feeling very unwell. Um, she'll have a um, hard, red, hot, painful udder. It could be an individual teats. It might be more than one, one uh, teat. Um, she'll have a, a purulent vaginal discharge. And again, she will have those hungry, empty piglets, either because uh, the, the, she's totally stopped milking because of the infection, um, or she's too sore to let them uh, suckle. We very commonly see this about um, within three days of farrowing. Um, Treatment-wise, antibiotics, um, I would give her a course of um, something along the lines of pen strep. Anti-inflammatories, which is your meloxidil, metacam, loxicam, any of the above. Uh, and she may also need uh, the oxytocin and reprosin to allow the milk let down and to help the piglets as well. The reprosin, as I say, is a long acting oxytocin. So the oxytocin uh, in this case, reprosin will last up to about 24 hours. So the reprosin will see if you having to repeatedly inject your um, size with oxytocin. Yeah, so there's a few questions come through there on the mastitis as well, and um, one was around if obviously milk's not come down in 24 hours, what should we do? Um, what can we do to treat mastitis? I think you've covered that, but um, one question is, should we have the antibiotics for mastitis and, and the anti-inflammatories on, on hand, or is it something that we should deal with on an individual basis, bearing in mind that we are not large-scale like these commercial... Uh, farms that you're used to dealing with? Um, I think it's, um, it's never a bad idea to have some uh, penicillin and some anti-inflammatories on board. And I mean, the anti-inflammatories, they have more than one use, not just mastitis, you know, you can use it. It's a bit like um, ibuprofen in you and I, you would use it in uh, cases of lameness, or, or any or any case of um, or, or of inflammation, um, I think that um, I, I suppose it's at the vet's discretion. I suppose to dispense it, but I suppose on on a commercial scale, I'm talking about yes, the, these sorts of drugs will be on site, readily available um, for these conditions because this condition is fairly common. Um, just going back to the farrowing process itself, if you were to intervene um, with a farrowing sigh, I would always cover her with an antibiotic. Thank you. 
So with um with these cases of um mastitis MMA, um what actually predisposes to it? Um, well, two two main things really. Um, one is uh, farrowing house hygiene. Obviously, at the time of farrowing, the cervix is open, so the piglets can 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 come out. But equally, the cervix is open, so bacteria can can uh, go get in. Uh, so it's really important to make sure that your farrowing accommodation is spotless around the time of farrowing. More commonly on a commercial scale, what we find um, uh, triggers this is uh, increased um, pre-farrowing uh, feed. So feed intakes pre-farrowing are too high. So what we actually need to do to prevent it is we need to lower uh, feed intakes pre-farrowing. So if you overfeed the sow before she farrows, it can cause other congestion uh, and that can lead to the mastitis in itself. So the sorts of feed levels that we would be looking at on a commercial scale um, for the three days before she, the sow farrows, so for three days before the sow farrows, we will lower her feed intake to two kilos per day. Now that sounds quite low, considering that uh, our size will probably be eating around the uh, around the three kilo mark before that before they actually come in. Um, if your sows become agitated or if they, become, if they aren't content, you can actually um, add some bran to that two kilos. So the bran will, uh, it's very low density. It'll allow a lot of gut fill for her. So she'll be a lot more contented. And because it's bran, it will also help with um, any constipation or any obstruction uh, that she might be experiencing at that time. Um, so two ways to prevent MMA. One is lower the feed intakes pre-farrowing. So for three days before she farrows to two kilos max and ensure hygiene at farrowing time. <clears throat> um, one of the, um, that's just a diagrammatic form of, of what I've just said. One of the um, things that uh, Kim asked me just to, to mention was about side prolapse. Um, now that's actually usually before farrowing. So vaginal prolapses are normally seen to an increased um, abdominal pressure together with a relaxation of the internal structure that supports the cervix. So, excuse me, so old size that are heavy in pig with large litters and in very good body condition uh, are likely candidates to um, experience this. Also, if you've got a very slippy environment or if the size fed high starch diets, that can predispose to vaginal prolapses also. Um, if the um, prolapse remains when the size is standing, uh, we can pop a suture across the vulva uh, to replace that, which obviously will need to relax after firing. If you experience a uterine prolapse, I haven't put a picture in there of a uterine prolapse because it's not very nice. Um, if you experience a uterine prolapse, it's often it's not successful. It's not successful to replace it. The sigh often experiences internal hemorrhage, uh, at which point you know you really have to consider euthanasia and welfare grounds. So hopefully you will never, hopefully we'll never see that. 
just a little bit about piglet processing. Um, you guys will probably do a lot less than, than what we do. Um, two things really that you can, uh, can consider. Um, iron, uh, you can give the piglets an injection of iron. If you're going to do that, that must be before day three because the capacity to absorb iron for the piglets um, dramatically reduces after three days of age. A lot of your um, piglets will be outdoors, so you could question the need to actually do that. Um, whereas our piglets are more reared inside. So we would routinely give an iron injection um, before three days of age. One of the other things that we routinely do is we give uh, baycocks, which is to reduce um, piglet diarrhea from coccidiosis. Uh, and that needs to be done around day three to six. Uh, there's lots of combinations on the market. That's an, usually an oral product, but there are some new ones that are actually um, injectable and are iron and Baycox all in one. Um, and again, I've just popped in very small writing. Again, I don't um, envisage that you guys will be doing any of that, but we would consider teething and tailing uh, our piglets uh, and we'd only do that under veterinary advice where we deemed it necessary for piglet or sow welfare. Sorry, um, can you just clarify there on the iron and the baycocks, is, is that an injectable or is that an oral, an, an oral paste or, you know, something like that? Um, thank you, Andrew. Uh, the iron is, is always injectable. Um, the baycocks is uh, depending on what product uh, you want to use. The um, Baycox is normally uh, an oral, is an oral dozer, but there are new products just coming onto the market at the moment, which combine iron and uh, the active ingredient, which is Baycox, and that is an injectable. Thank you. So just moving on to a little bit about creep feeding. So on a commercial scale, we'll normally creep feed our piglets from about four to seven days of age. Um, there are several benefits of doing this. It prepares the piglet's gut for carbohydrate-based diets. It minimizes weight loss in the sow by taking the pressure off her milk demand. And it also improves growth rates and weaning size. The key to creep feeding is to feed little and often and keep it fresh and palatable. If you, if you imagine what's actually in creep feeding, it's very milk product based. So it's very important to keep it, it fresh. Uh, we normally feed the um, creep to the piglets whenever we're feeding the sow, because if the sow is up and eating herself, it means that she's not feeding the piglets. So the piglets will naturally want to copy her and hopefully take on some more creep. We keep it towards the head end of the side, so that again, the piglets can copy and we uh, always keep it in a cool area. So just wanted to run a little bit uh, about side feed intake, my side milking, improve weaning weights and to safeguard the subsequent reproductive performance. Some of the ways that we can improve our intakes are to keep the sow at a comfortable temperature, i.e. 16 to 18 degrees. We can increase the frequency of feeding and the interval between feeds should be even. 
The feed should be a high density lactator and the sow should have access to ample clean water. If you're using nipple drinkers, the minimum flow rate that we would advise is two liters per minute. And then obviously ensuring that the sow is actually in, in good health herself by regularly checking for sign health. So on a commercial scale, we'll be looking at the following feed guide. So as we said, around uh, farrowing time, she'd be on about two kilos uh, per day at the point of farrowing. We normally increase this by half a kilo per day up to ad lib. So she should be eating basically So just moving on to um, what vaccinations um, we commonly use. So I've, I've, this is by no means a comprehensive list uh, of vaccinations, but it's those that I've deemed um, most important and the ones that we would most commonly use. Um, their vaccinations are a bit of a minefield um, and obviously you'll need to consult your vets and what they recommend your vaccination schedule should be. That will obviously depend on the existing health status of your pigs and also the anticipated risk for your, uh, for your unit. So uh, I hope or I think that most of you will be using uh, Airy Parvo. So erysipelas parvovirus, we should be vaccinating our gilts before they're served. So at least, at least four weeks before they're served, the gilts will need two times erysipelas injections and one time parvovirus injections. Uh, they'll need those two injections separated by a four week interval and they will need that at least four weeks before they're served. The size will um, get a booster uh, every cycle uh, in the farrowing house on a commercial scale. So once the sows are farrowed, we will booster them um, with the uh, erysipelas and or parvovirus. The erysipelas side of the vaccination will last six months. The parvovirus side lasts uh, one year. So there are products on the market such as Porcellus Eri, which just does the erysipelas or there's Porcellus Eri Parvo, which is a combination, it will do both. If you can't remember what you've given your side the previous time, it will do her absolutely no harm to booster her with Airy Parvo every time. Uh, it's just a little bit more expensive, obviously, to have the Airy Parvo than the Airy on its own. Um, there's also um, a few other um, bits that I've mentioned on here, a few other vaccinations that we commonly use. So PERS, which is P-R-R-S, so that's porcine, reproductive and respiratory syndrome. That's a, a very frustrating uh, viral disease for us uh, at the moment, which causes uh, us great trouble to try to control on, on pig farms. Uh, it causes late abortions, dropouts, poor conception rates, non-viable piglets and respiratory disease. Um, the vaccines that we use um, for PERS at the moment, uh, they're live uh, vaccines, but unfortunately the virus that's in the vaccines is about 13 to 14 years old. And of course, uh, we all know how good viruses are at mutating, <laughs> uh, especially recently. Um, so it causes us great frustration to try to control that. Um, 
So one of the uh, other things that we very commonly um, vaccinate for, in fact, always vaccinate for on a commercial scale is uh, PCV2, which is porcine circovirus, and that is AKA, also known as uh, wasting disease. Um, those will very often be uh, vaccinated for in combination with enzyotic pneumonia, which is MHIO. So that, um, and we'll always vaccinate our, our sire and our piglets for uh, wasting and MHIO. So the piglets will be done um, at weaning time or shortly before weaning time, and the size will be boosted uh, once uh, as a guilt and plus or minus any um, boosters that we feel necessary depending on each individual farm herd health. The E. coli and Clostridial side of the vaccinations. So the E. coli and Clostridial uh, vaccinations will be given to the size just before they're farrowed. The gilts require two vaccinations at six and three weeks before the farrow. Um, and the size required just one top-up booster three weeks before the farrow. Now, the E. coli and the Clostridial vaccinations are very often um, there to protect the piglets. And that's why we give them at that time before the farrow um, to ensure that there is passive transfer of antibodies to the piglets. And again, that goes back to our colostrum management. If we are vaccinating the size in order to enhance antibody uh, in the size um, to protect the piglets, it relies on good colostrum intakes in the piglets to ensure that tra passive transfer has occurred. <clears throat> now, if we're in a smaller group, I would ask everybody to guess uh, what this was a picture of. Now, this is a, a very classic picture um, of parvovirus. So with parvovirus, what you tend to see um, is anything from live born piglets to normal stillbirths at, with varying degrees of mummified um, sized piglets. And the reason for this is because the parvovirus, the virus, tends to move sequentially along the uterus and it'll kill one piglet at a time. It will kill one piglet and then it'll move on to the next one. And that's why we see piglets at various stages of development with the parvovirus. So this is a classic um, picture of uh, erysipelas. If you see red diamond shaped uh, skin discoloration, um, very classic of erysipelas. Uh, what we can also see with erysipelas, it can also cause limbness death because erysipelas can cause um, cauliflower like lesions to grow on the heart valves. Um, and it means that the heart valves cannot uh, open and close as they would normally, and uh, the pig overexerts itself, and you can cause it, and you can see a sudden death because of that. Does anyone have any questions about the um, vaccinations, Andrew? Yeah, so there, was a, so there was a question here. Um, do you recommend the use of Engelvac, Microflex, and Circreflex vaccines for piglets at three weeks of age? 
Um, <laughs> is there anyone from England back on the line? <laughs> uh, I I wouldn't have thought they, I wouldn't have thought they were no. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I wouldn't, Andrew. Um, and um, the reason being is that the um, the combination vaccines. So the combination vaccines, which include mHio and PCV two often have very good efficacy for the PCV2 component, but a very, very, very poor efficacy for the MHIO portion. And I'm afraid that that vaccination is well-renowned um, for that. Okay, thank you. And another question was, is, you know, are these vaccinations, you know, that you recommend for the cell and the cycle, you know, a must. I think I believe you said that you should consult with your vet about your uh, about the relevant uh, vaccines that you need. But the question was was just around, uh, you know, do you recommend these vaccines? What's your guidance? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, without knowing each individual unit, uh, I couldn't profess to um, uh, write a vaccination schedule for you. But I would say, as a very bare minimum, um, you should be using Airy Parvo. Um, in your size routinely. The other vaccinations, as I say, will depend on your herd health status and your perceived risk of your uh, of a potential health breakdown. What's the vicinity of your of your pigs to you know somebody else's? Uh, what what problems do you see in in your pigs? Do you see piglet um, diarrhea very often? In which case, if you do, is it E. coli? If it is E. coli or rotavirus? then we can vaccinate the size to try to prevent that in the piglets. Okay, thank you. And uh, just one question about the, I can never pronounce it, the uh, irolipsius, the one with the diamond shapes. It does, mm -hmm. The question is, does it, does it always show as diamond shapes or are there other ways that irolipsis can be shown? Um, no, erysipelas, you don't always see the diamond shapes. Um, if you do see the skin lesions, it is, um, as I say, it's pathognomonic for erysipelas, which means it, it cannot be anything else, really. Um, but the two other presentations that you can see with erysipelas is lameness. Um, and the other thing is um, sudden death. So um, because it causes um, heart valve lesions, pigs can um, drop dead. Um, the erysipelas is more common in, in summer weather when pigs are um, wanting to wallow uh, in muck. Um, so you will tend to see it more in summer months. That's interesting. Thank you. So one of the... Um, So um, which is recorded as piglet mortality is overlays. I mean, we would record more than half of the piglets as being overlaid, but I don't accept that as a reason in itself. Yes, of course, healthy piglets can be overlaid, but what I'm asking you to do is, is, is look at the other possibilities to make sure that we've ruled them out also. Has the, you know, was the piglet weak? Had it had adequate colostrum? Was it ill? Was there any signs of diarrhea? Was there any signs of any joint infection? Any reason that that piglet could not get out of the way of the sigh? 
Um, one, uh, most of the piglet mortality that you will see uh, will be in the first three days and, and it varies farm to farm. One of the most uh, common diseases that we tend to see uh, in, in piglets is, is diarrhea. Now, Clostridial perfringens, which is the uh, top left-hand uh, picture, it very often uh, presents as hemorrhagic diarrhea um, or sudden death. It's, it seems to be a very, very uh, acute um, disease in, in suckling piglets. The uh, ETEC, which is your E. coli, Sorry, that, that word PED shouldn't be there. <laughs> the, the top right-hand picture is E. coli uh, and the bottom left-hand picture is rotavirus. So E. coli and rotavirus are very often clinically very hard to differentiate looseness and they both tend to occur within about the first five days of birth. <clears throat> now, both of those can be associated with very high mortality. Um, how would we treat um, the likes of these uh, looseness? Um, sorry, I missed out the coccidiosis is the bottom right hand chain. So it's a bit of a later, later looseness. Um, and it is not watery. It tends to be pasty white, uh, quite often um, referred to as a salad cream type looseness, <laughs> just to put everyone off their uh, tea. Um, and looking at how we could actually um, treat these uh, types of uh, diarrhea in piglets. The Clostridia, um, as I say, will very often be a sudden death or it'll be a very acute looseness. Um, but Clostridia is very sensitive to penicillins. And that would be your treatment of choice for, for um, this kind of um, looseness. Now, of course, before you start treating these piglets, what I would recommend is that you take a, a swab and uh, get it into your vet and get a culture and sensitivity just to make sure we know what we're dealing with uh, prior, prior to actually starting any treatment. Because once you've, once you've injected the animal, it's very difficult to get a... Um, uh, um, the uh, E. coli and rotavirus, the rotavirus is a virus, so it's a bit like uh, going to the doctor with flu. He'll tell you to, to go home and uh, uh, TLC. Um, rotavirus will often, though, occur in combination with E. coli. So it's not necessarily one or the other. You can get both together. Now, if you have mm -hmm. the E. coli component, it's usually very sensitive to drugs like uh, Noradine 24, Spectam oral, um, so that's an oral um, paste into the mouth. And with any kind of looseness, we would always recommend putting electrolytes down to the piglets to ensure that they don't get dehydrated. Uh, the coccidiosis, so the coccidiosis is a bit, um, it's a parasitic, uh, I suppose for want of a better word, a more a parasitic looseness does have some um, anti-coxy component to it. So if you did see a, a, a coccidiosis-like looseness, you could use Noradine 24 um, to treat that. And then obviously going forward, you'd be looking at using things like Baycox to prevent it. If you did see looseness, uh, in your piglets at all. We would always treat what we can see, but then we would have to look at prevention. Now, all these um, 
all these types of looseness can be prevented either by vaccination of the thigh. Um, so we can vaccinate the thigh um, to produce antibodies to get that into the colostrum to protect the piglets. And we can do that for clostridia, for rotavirus and for E. coli. Coccidiosis, we can prevent that by giving the piglet the oral baycocks at three to six days of age. And just to clarify the age predilection for the piglet looseness, just to put it in a graphical form for you. So the E. coli very much within the first uh, five to seven days of age. The Clostridia tends to also be very young piglets. Um, and again, as I say, it's a very, a very acute um, sudden death and hemorrhagic looseness. Coccidia tends to occur a little bit later on in, in piglets and it can happen anywhere between sort of 10, 10 to 14 days is the most common range, but it can extend to the 21 day old piglet. Um, they can get a little bit of dietary looseness because uh, when you introduce uh, carbohydrate based um, creep powders. Does anybody have any questions about the um, piglet um, diarrhea? So there was one question around what's the best disinfectant for indoor farrow for cleaning out your pans? Yeah, very good question. Thank you, Andrew. Um, we would uh, recommend the use of Vercon S. Okay. Um, but yeah. if you have, sorry, if you have um, cox, coccidia problems, the coccidia um, is very frustrating because... It, um, when it replicates, it produces uh, what we call an oocyst, which is basically an egg, and it has a vent to most disinfectants, particularly um, frustrating if you've got um, irregular surfaces such as concrete, etc. It's very hard to get rid of in the environment. Um, so the disinfectants that you would be looking to use if you were worried about coccidia would be Kilcock, or biocyst. Okay. They're very uh, coccidia specific. And um, in, on our uh, farrowing house systems, we would very often alternate our disinfectants to include uh, kill cocks or biocyst in the program. Okay, thank you. And there's also a question about green poos in piglets. What does that indicate? I think you covered that. With the um, E. coli one, did you? I can't remember. Yeah, it, again, um, piglet looseness. Um, it depends whether it's it's uh, it's watery or it's uh, pasty, or it depends on on what age the piglet and uh, what age the piglet is. Um, as I say, the E. coli and rotavirus and Clostridia tend to have fairly high mortalities. The Coccidia, not so much. Um, are they introducing any feed at that point uh, is also a question. Uh, if it's a sort of dark, um, greeny, black looseness, it's very often dietary related. Um, if it has more of a sort of brown, yellow tinge, there could be an element of E. coli in there. Okay, thank you. Uh, and the, the final question on the list here is, what brand of electrolyte do you use or would you recommend? 
Um, there's there's so many on the market at the moment. I tend to use um, the uh, local um, the local one, which is uh, at East Riding uh, Farm Supplies. So uh, it's uh, much of a muchness, really. Whatever your local farm supplies has. Okay, thank you. I think to the to the person who asked the question about the um, the green looseness, if it's something they're worried about, um, just um, submit a swab into into your into your veterinary practice. Um, a culture and sensitivity should be about twenty five pounds. If it's something that they're worried about, it will rule out um, uh, anything nasty like E. coli uh, or Clostridia. Um, I think a rotavirus test is is possibly an additional fifteen to twenty pounds. Uh, and a coccidia, you can look at that under the microscope in house. So you know that those sort of diagnostics don't really break the bank. Okay, thank you. So just finally, just wanted to uh, run through. Uh, I've mentioned several times about injecting pigs. Uh, so just wanted to roughly run through some injection techniques. Um, so the intramuscular one, obviously it goes into the muscle. And the reason for that is because it has a good blood supply and that allows it to have a good distribution around the body. And that's really important to make sure that you get the right needle length to ensure that it actually goes into the muscle rather than in any subcutaneous tissue or any ligament tissue. So when you're talking about a piglet, you'll use a small 5 8 a 21 gauge needle. Wieners and growers, a one inch needle. Um, and once you get to finishers and adult pigs, you should be looking at using a one and a half inch needle to ensure that you're getting into the muscle where the best blood supply is. So uh, my preferred site of injection uh, is in the neck. It means that you're 0.3 uh, in the hind leg. You're at risk of um, damaging the uh, sciatic nerve at that point. So I would always uh, prefer to inject in the neck just behind the base of the ear uh, and at a right angle to the skin. So he's not quite a right angle to the skin, but just for uh, showing you purposes. So I just went straight into the muscle. So that's the correct position and angle. Just to show you whenever it's too high. So that'll go into the ligament tissue in the neck. Um, and what you can often find is that might cause an abscess. And if you've injected your uh, vaccination in there, you can be sure that you've wasted your money. And that uh, is too low. It could go into fat or subcutaneous tissue. So there again, if you get it too low, you can see how it's uh, missing the muscle. And again, if you use the incorrect needle length, you're just going into the subcutaneous tissue. You're at risk of the uh, vaccination or antibiotic not working and also um, at risk of causing a abscess on the neck. So I think that uh, we're pretty much um, out of time and that was a very, very fast uh, whiz through uh, farrowing house management. And 
thank you for listening everybody if anybody's got any questions i'm going to try and put my video back on yeah so thank you very much Louise. it might be best if you just turn off the screen share as well that might that might help with the thing i think i've covered off most of the questions that we've had through on the direct messages um they seem to be there's common themes so um if you have messaged me with a question and it's not been answered you feel free to uh, to shout out or message me directly um one question that has come up a couple of times um louise is your slides obviously been quite useful is that something that you'd be happy to share with us or are they proprietary to you and i totally understand if they're your slides that obviously you don't want them overused yeah I mean yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, can share those. No problem. Yeah, most of them are my videos anyway, and I can uh, reference those that aren't. So, and, and we have one other question is that um, there's things about hereditary um, things, problems in Farrand. Is that something that's passed on hereditary? You know, problems with birth, is that hereditary or that just tends to be something that's specific to the cow based on the, the cow, the pig, sorry, based on the environment <laughs> and, and the way it's brought up? I think farrowing problems, there's so many things that, uh, that influence um, the farrowing process itself. What is um, hereditary, um, Andrew, is, is birth weight. Um, which is um, something that we strive to achieve on a commercial basis because we have very big litter sizes. So we want them to be very big, but, um, and also birth weight is, is, uh, is related to survivability of the piglets. So, so the, you know, the bigger they are, the, the more likely they are to survive. But if you have a particular size that has had dystocia because of um, fetal oversize, then that is likely to be hereditary. Um, birth weight, as I say, is hereditary, uh, but also birth weight will depend on, on, on her litter size. Thank you. Are there any more questions? Feel free to unmute and ask away um, if you have anything specific that I've missed. Um, I know it was a, a very quick whiz through. Don't be shy if you've got any specific questions. So, it, so there's a question here. I think this probably very much differs from commercial tea to our rare breeds. But at what age should you stop breeding a, breeding a sow? <laughs> um, yeah, good question. <laughs> That's a good question. So long as she, I suppose, so long as she's fit and healthy and um, uh, and producing how 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 you wanted to, um, we tend to find on a commercial scale that. Um, the performance of the sigh will drop off. So if the performance of the sigh starts to drop off, we don't tend to keep them past um, sixth parity. Um, but as long as she's happy and fit and healthy and she doesn't have any problems uh, or hasn't previously had any problems, then uh, crack on. So there was one another question about reiterating around that you mentioned about dropping the feed um, of a sow a few days before before giving birth from by a third from three kilos to two kilos. Um, 
So someone's asked, my sales are on two kilos feed now. What do I drop prior to farrowing and how much do you increase after? So if they're on two kilos, just to maintain their body condition, I would probably put them to a kilo and a half. Um, and if that, as I say, you can add extra bran to achieve some gut fill at that point. Um, after she finishes farrowing, so on the day of farrowing and the day after, you will probably keep her on about a kilo and a half. Um, she won't be interested on the day she's farrowed anyway, and she will only just be starting to get onto her feed curve the following day. I normally start increasing the feed by about half a kilo per head per day after the point of farrowing up to the point where she'll be on ad lib now ad lib on a commercial scale for a gilt i would say she should be eating about eight kilos per day for a side we'd be looking to achieve at least 10. thank you so a question here about blood from the vulva what does that indicate um, so that can either be um, detachment of the placenta. So if it's during the farrowing process, if there's excessive blood, um, I would look to intervene at that point. Um, so I would put my hand in and see if there's um, a piglet stuck. Um, the inside of the uterus is obviously very uh, vascular. So it could just be that the piglet has, has scraped or but there could also be an obstruction. So I think I would intervene at that point. Okay, thank you. And a couple more questions here uh, around as to when you would first breed your 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 guilt, you'd first put to the boar. I mean, is, is is there an age that you would recommend? Me personally, I very much suspect that's down to the actual size of the animal rather than the age, but I'll leave you to uh, comment on that. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the rare breeds, and I mean, um, Kim could probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I can only, I, I, I can only say what, what, what we do on a commercial scale. Um, so we very much look at age and uh, at body condition and weight. So, so the sorts of targets that we would be looking at would be, uh, we would breed our gilts at about 240 days. And at that point, we'd be looking for her to be a minimum of 140 kilos. What's that? It's like nine months old then, is it? My, my math's right? 240 days, nine months, thereabouts? Was my math yeah. way out? Something like that, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, and the question, obviously, if cells have a problem, I mean, if a cell has mastitis on one with one particular farrowing, you know, should you consider not breeding from her again or that tends to be a, you know, does, does that have a long-term issue? Um, the result of the mastitis will very, very often be reflective of how fast it was picked up and how fast it was treated. Um, if you pick it up very quickly and re you resolve the uh, mastitis, she will very often lose function during that lactation, but presume but she may well um, return to lactation on that teat if, um, if the damage hasn't been too great. If you've picked it up very quickly, she could return to lactation on that teat. Okay, thank you. Um, I just could do one more question, conscious that we are we are over time, and you know we're very much appreciative of everything that you've asked. Um, where's the question I just I just saw that I wanted to ask there? Let me pop through. Um, I've lost that question now. Uh, there's a few other lots of people saying thank you very much for your time. Lots of questions about the age, which we've covered. Um, 
Um, what should you do if blisters occur on, on another? Blister, well, find find out the cause of, of where where the blisters are coming from. I think that you you would have to look at uh, what the what the flooring was like. Um, one thing um, that might have occurred is look at your cleaning and disinfection products. If you've used lime very often, it can cause um, burns unless it's been allowed to cure for a few days before the size actually go in. So I think the first thing to check off would be the environment that the size was actually in at that time and what was the actual cause of the blisters. Uh, remove what the remove what the cause was, but then obviously address the blisters themselves. So use a pseudocreme and if necessary a penicillin based antibiotic um, if she's uncomfortable which I presume she will be if she's got blisters on her udder you would also consider using an anti-inflammatory painkiller. Okay, thank you. Um, well so say so, yeah lots of questions coming through sorry lots of thanks coming through I uh, really appreciate your time Louise um, it's been a very useful session lots of good lots of good uh, Oh, I've certainly learned a considerable amount. And uh, thanks to everyone for all your questions. And uh, apologies if I have missed them. There have been a lot come through. I'm trying to sort of group the topics to um, rather than repeat the questions. If you do have a question um, that hasn't been answered, that I haven't answered, please drop me an email and I'll, I'll try and see if we can get an answer to that for you. Um, but thank you very much for your time. And thank you very much, Louise. Very useful, very, very useful session. No problem. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Well, I'm sure you all agree that was a very interesting evening. And thanks again to Louise Blencon for taking the time to share all that great information uh, and experience with us. And that brings us to the end of a, another podcast. Um, as always, I've been your host, Andrew O'Shea. 